0: Please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter twelve. That's where we'll begin this morning. So I turned fifty this week. Yeah, big milestone, and uh, I don't feel fifty. And a lot of my friends say I don't behave fifty, so I'm kind of clinging to that. <clears throat> but I got a, a, a nice uh, encouragement from my friend and coworker Buck Anderson. He said, uh, "Brian, it's you know a, a life a life well lived." so far. And, you know, Buck, uh, he has the authority to speak that word into my life because Buck is so much older than I am <laughs> that I accept that. Exhortation, but I believe that. You know, I, I know there are areas in my life that uh, they require greater maturity. I need to grow. I need to learn. I need to press on. I want to finish well. I don't want to be exactly who I am and where I am when I'm at the end of my life. And that's what God wants for each of us as well. He he doesn't want us simply to start well. He wants us to live well today, certainly, but He also wants us to live well tomorrow. And at the end of our lives, we're sprinting across the finish line, accelerating as we move into the next chapter of life with Him for eternity. I saw a good visual illustration of this. Uh, This semester, my son started running track. And uh, I noticed that with uh, middle school runners, it doesn't really matter so much who starts out really fast, because a lot of times these these kids will start out really fast, but then they'll begin to fade at the end, and there was a a track meet this last weekend, and there were about three or four heats of the 400, and I watched uh, three separate kids start out fast, but then as they were coming down that final stretch in the 400, each of these three kids, they got about... I'd say four or five strides away from the finish line and their legs just started going like this. And you could tell their mind was saying, keep running. And their body said, no, no. You know, and literally these kids, they're three or four steps away and their body just said, no, boom. And they hit the deck and tried to stand up and couldn't stand up. They couldn't even stand up. And then they just crawled across the finish line. Mind was saying one thing. Body said, no, no, you're not going any- you're not going to run anymore. Why? Well, they hadn't really trained for that distance. The lactic acid was building up in their legs and all the muscles were shutting down. Their mind was still firing, but their legs were not. Got so close to finishing well, but didn't. Thought, What a beautiful illustration. You need to train for that race so that you can sprint when you get to the end. You know, men and women, that's what God does in our lives. He trains us so that we can finish well. That training, biblically, is called discipline. That's the subject of chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to unpack this a bit this morning. I want you to begin reading with me in verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God, our Heavenly Father, disciplines us. He trains us because he loves us. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't discipline us. And all of his discipline, all of his training comes to us because, in fact, God loves us. But I will confess, when I was a kid and my parents were disciplining me, it wasn't my first thought, oh, how they love me, right? I wasn't, I wasn't feeling the love. In fact, in my mind, I was saying to myself, you know, if they really did love me, then they wouldn't do this to me or against me. But a loving parent knows better. A loving parent does discipline his or her children. And God is a great father, and so God disciplines us, and God disciplines us because he loves us. So maybe we better go back and redefine what we mean by love. Love isn't that God always gives us everything that we want. Love is that God always acts in our best interest. Love is that God chases us down even when we're running from him. And even when we think we know better, God knows what is best, and he does what is best. God is always pursuing what is absolutely best for us because God loves us. And we can trust him to always do what's right. Remember when you were a kid and your parents would be disciplining you and they'd say, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. You said, yeah, right. No, it doesn't. Then you become a parent and you realize, yeah, actually it's harder on the parent than it is on the child. My mom hated disciplining us when she had to discipline us, my mom would cry. She'd cry and she'd say, why are you making me do this to you? I mean, I can remember my mom being in tears. And I remember one time she was in tears and she said, I have to spank you. I have to discipline you. And so she spanked me, but she, she just didn't hit me very hard, right? Because she just couldn't bring herself to hit me very hard. So she just spanked me real lightly and I turned around and I laughed. Once. <laughs> Only once. <clears throat> Only once. And somehow in that small frame, she found the strength to give me what I deserved in that moment. Why? Because she loves me. Was I feeling the love in the moment? Probably not. But a good parent disciplines his children, her children, out of love. Rather than allowing us to remain in our foolishness, God chooses to discipline us. A bad father, a bad mother, a bad parent doesn't discipline Bad parent doesn't show affection and love and deep concern and emotional connection nor set boundaries. A great parent does both, right? A bad parent doesn't either. There's an emotional disconnect and there are no boundaries that are set. You ever known an adult who grew up with no boundaries? It doesn't make for a mature adult. Remember one of the first friends that I met when I came to a I went to fish camp and I met a guy who was a presidential scholar he got all four years paid for right room and board and tuition the whole thing but he had grown up without any kind of boundaries and so he got to a and and he just went crazy I mean, he went wild first semester he was on scholastic probation second semester he flunked out lost his scholarship for all four years that's a lot of money and so he had to scratch and struggle and strive just to get back into school because he wasn't a mature person because his parents had not trained him to be mature. They had not disciplined him. So what does a good parent do? What does a good father do? Well, I've thought a lot more about it now since becoming a parent and living as a parent and acting as a parent. And I'm sure that my list is not yet complete. It'll probably grow throughout all of my parenting. But here are a couple ideas that I have so far that relate certainly to human parenting, but also the way that God loves us as a good father First. A good father, a good parent, creates a sense of identity and value. In our family, this is who a fisher is. This is who we are. This is who you are, tell my children. This is our identity. And you are valuable and you are loved just because of who you are, not because of what you do. You're valued because of who you are, not how you perform. We love you. You belong to us. Remember a couple weeks ago, we saw God's word to his children, Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 26. The Lord has, de- has declared to you today that you are his people, a treasured possession, just as he promised you. Out of all that I have created, God said, Israel, and all that I own, what's most valuable to me is you. We recall that Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 26 is followed by 27 and 28, 26, he says, you're valuable to me. I love you. But then in 27 and 28, he sets boundaries. Second element of great fatherhood, great parenting. Great father sets clear expectations. Chapters 27 and 28, God says, if you obey, if you behave as who you are, uh, one of my children, a member of my family, and you reflect who I am and my character... These are the good consequences. They're called blessings. On the other hand, if you choose not to live like one of my family, these are the bad consequences. They're called cursings. These are the expectations. This is what obedience looks like. This is what disobedience looks like. These are the expectations. And third, here are the consequences. And the consequences are appropriate. When you behave in this manner, these are the blessings when you disobey. You behave in this manner. These are the negative consequences. And the consequences are appropriate to the behavior. Right, a good parent doesn't set unreasonable or arbitrary consequences. Uh, you know, Every once in a while, I will confess, just to kind of get my kids' attention, I will throw out a, a completely arbitrary discipline for them. Right, right now, one of our issues at home, um, I should say not to embarrass my kids, but uh, I don't care. Um, they're, they're subject to uh, being my illustrations sometimes. And Sometimes I remember to ask permission and sometimes I don't. Sorry, kids. Um, right now, the issue is we, we walk out of the house and we leave the door open. I tell them, you know, I'm, I'm looking at that open door and I'm watching money fly out of our house, right? And so as that money is flying out of our house, I'm going to take money out of your bank account. Every time you leave the door open, I'm taking hundred dollars. What? It's not, it's not appropriate. And they know, they, they know I'm not going to actually do that. I'm just trying to kind of get their attention a little bit. I mean, it, right. Maybe that doesn't fall on the list of good parenting, but I'm trying to just shock them and Remind them that there are consequences. And hopefully, we are consistently setting appropriate consequences and then consistently applying those consequences. When this occurs, this will occur. This is the world in which you live, and it's stable, and it's secure, and it's predictable. Because you know, it's human nature to test the boundaries, it's in our nature. Look at any two-year-old, any two-year-old. You do not train them to test boundaries, but they begin to test boundaries. They begin to realize, hey, I'm a I'm my own human being. I'm an independent agent here in the world, and there are boundaries set around me. I need to see if those are real. I'm going to test them. We say, Don't touch the stove. If you do, it will burn you. If you do, you will be disciplined. And so what does a two-year-old do? Two-year-old looks at you and goes like this. Are you gonna stop me? Are you going to enforce that boundary? Or are you going to enforce it every time? Well, you know, one time I didn't. and Don't call CPS, but I didn't on purpose. I saw my son. He was moving toward the stove, and I knew I'd just been at the stove, and the pan was warm, but it wouldn't burn him. So I said, don't touch the stove. And he looked at me, and he began walking. I said, don't touch the stove. And he began walking, he kept walking. Oh, the deliciousness of Romans 7. Awesome. He said, don't touch the stove, which means there's something good on the stove that I must have, right? That's Romans 7 mentality. And so he reached out, touched that pan, and it was just hot enough that it got his attention. Like, oh, and he cried. There was no burn, right? And the people, there was no burn. He did not get burned at all, but it got his attention. Mommy and daddy set boundaries for your good. Mommy and daddy establish consequences for your good. Fifth characteristic. A good father, a good parent reassures love and commitment. Even in the midst of discipline, you're not being disciplined because we hate you. You're being disciplined because we love you. Remember God's word to Israel? Jeremiah 31, when they were in exile, they were experiencing God's discipline. They'd been taken off of the land and God came to them and he said, you belong to me. I love you. I am committed to you. You are still my children. In fact, if the heavens above can be measured and the depths of the earth can be searched out below, then I'll cast you off for all that you've done. I know all that you've done, but no one can search the heavens and no one can reach the depths of the earth. That means you belong to me and you belong to me forever. So don't interpret your discipline as rejection. Your discipline is love. Your discipline is love. Sixth characteristic. Good father, a good parent clarifies the purpose. There's meaning to this. There's a reason for this. There's a goal that we're striving after. It's not it's not arbitrary. It's not unpredictable. It's for a reason. God says, the reason is for your character, your character that would be enduring, that would be shaped into my very image. I made you in my image so that you could be like me. Why? Because that's what's best for you. That's what's best for you. Read with me again chapter 12 and verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. The writer says, the reason that God disciplines us is so that we will share in the very holiness of God. Now, note, God doesn't discipline us because he's trying to exact vengeance or retribution. The only payment for sin is what, people? Payment for sin is death. God is not having us pay back for our sin. It's not retribution. It's not vengeance. God poured out all of his vengeance for our sin onto Jesus. And so Jesus paid the price for our sin. So now when God moves into our lives, it's not to exact payment from us. It's to mold us into his image. That's the essence of the gospel. The the wrath of God against all sin poured out upon Jesus. for, For your sin poured out on Jesus. So that when you believe in Jesus, the punishment has been paid. And when you believe in that, you belong to the family of God. You're his son. You're his daughter. And now as his son or his daughter, his commitment to you is this. I will mold you and I will make you into my very likeness. Why? Because that's what's best for you. That's where you experience satisfaction and fulfillment and in no other place. I remember a couple of years ago, I was walking with a friend of mine through, uh, She was driving me around his property and we got to the edge of his property we looked over the fence. He said, look over there. And there were two Rolls Royces parked out in a field. I go, well, what's, up? what's up with that? And he said, well, apparently they're in, in fine shape. The owner parked them out there and just left them out there, forgot about them. I go, How can you forget about a Rolls Royce? How's that possible? That's not what a Rolls Royce is not designed to be sitting in a field. I thought, you know what that Rolls Royce was designed for? It's for me to fix it up and paint Grace Bible Church across the side, right? Because every church needs a Rolls Royce. This is the pastor's car. So, And since there are two, actually, my friend Will Lewis is sitting here on the front from Brazos Fellowship. Will, you can have the other one, right? Brazos Fellowship and Grace Bible Church matching Rolls Royce. Because things have a purpose, there's a design. And your design is to be like your heavenly father. So he says, I want you to share in the holiness of God. Holiness is one of those kind of archaic words. You didn't use it this week in conversation. And often we think of it biblically in negative terms, right? To be separated from something. But really the dominant theme about holiness is to be separated for something. Separated from sin. God is perfect in holiness in that sense. But God is for all that is good. God is whole, God is wholesome, God is holy. Holiness, in a sense, can encapsulate all of the attributes of God. God is perfect. God is positively perfect. He's wholesome. My daughter has recently gotten into baking, and sometimes I will come home, and she has baked something, and I walk into the house, and the house is filled with deliciousness. Right, you, you can tell, something wonderful happened here today, and I'm about to enjoy it. And I think that is such a, a beautiful picture of the positive sense of holiness. God's design for you is that you would be whole. You'd be perfect, that you would be complete. In fact, Hebrews chapter 5, the author puts it this. He says, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He says, I want you to be holy. I want you to enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I want you to be mature. And the word for mature means complete. I want you to be absolutely complete. Just like me. Last week, Blake used this verse. Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Children should imitate their parents. Children should be like their parents. Children should become like their parents. And you're the children of God Will imitate him, be like him. Practically speaking, what does this look like? Well, let me take you back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you want to be like your father. You want to be sons of your father. You want to reflect your father's very character and be imitators of him. Well, this is what he's like. He doesn't just love those who love him back. In fact, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus hung on a cross, having just had nails driven through his wrists and his hands, having been beaten within a very inch of his life, and he looks down and he says, Father, destroy them, crush them. No, he says, Father... Release them from the debt, because I am paying. Men and women, that is supernatural transformation. That's what God is like. God is love. And love gives and gives and gives and gives. You don't want to know when you are moving toward maturity? is when you think less about taking and less about receiving and more about giving. Because that's the nature of the grace of God. Even when we were sinners, undeserving, deserving of punishment for our sins, God gave his son. Why? Because he so loved us. And that is God's desire for us, to transform our character in that way. Men and women, we need to understand first that God's motive is always love. Because the process through which we become mature, through which we move out of immaturity, right, toward maturity, out of thinking just of ourselves and thinking of God and others can be a really painful process because there are so many things that we cling to. We say, I must have this. For life to be good and satisfying and fulfilling. And so God moves into our lives and discipline or training means God begins to break those things up. He releases our grip on those things. And when we hold those things really, really tightly, it hurts when our fingers get pried back. And so we must know that God's commitment to us is love and that his purpose is character that transcends time. Otherwise, when God begins to move into our lives and the process is painful, we will say no. And we will arrest that process and we will stop growing. We must begin with understanding God's commitment to us is always love. I want you to read with me chapter 12 and verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How does God train us? Well, he trains us in a variety of ways, and a lot of those ways are often painful. Webster's defines discipline like this. Discipline is training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. It perfects the mental faculties or moral character. That really fits well with the biblical definition. Discipline referred to the training of a child, moving a child from immaturity to maturity. The pedagogue was a trainer, and he paid attention not just to the intellect, but also to the moral faculties of the heart. God's training pays attention not just to the information that we have about him, but to our heart, to our character, even to our entire body. Because through our body, we worship or we rebel. And so God's training encapsulates the entire person. And training can be a painful process. What does he say here in verse 11? All discipline... For the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Notice discipline and training go together. Training is discipline and discipline is training. The word for training there, it's the Greek word, gymnazo, from which we get gymnasium. And I will tell you, when I go to the gym, I don't think, man, I'm going to get a cappuccino and sit on a couch. (laughs) I think I'm going to have pain inflicted upon me. Or on myself, I'm going to stretch muscles that don't want to be stretched. I'm going to tear things that don't want to be torn so that they can heal together again stronger, faster. It's painful. Even God's training of our character, men and women, can often be painful. As you know, I grew up uh, playing hockey. Hockey was my, my sport of choice. And the training was not always pleasant. In fact, um, the only times that were given to kids who played hockey were the worst Times that no one else wanted to purchase the ice during those times because all the money's in figure skating. Right? The moms who think that their daughter's going to go to the Olympics, so they pay lots of money for the best times. But the kids, the boys playing hockey, they get the worst, worst times. We had practices in the mornings before school or on weekends, sometimes 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. And so I want you to picture this for a second, right? This is uh, upstate New York. You play hockey in the winter, right? It's cold, lots of snow. So if I had a 5 a.m. practice, our house is about 20 minutes away from the rink, sometimes my dad would have to get up two hours ahead of time to get me to the rink on time. So 5 a.m. practice, my dad got up at 3 a.m. Because he'd have to go outside and he'd have to brush the snow off the car, scrape the ice off the car, might have to shovel the driveway, might have to put chains on the tires, get me up and awake, and dressed, and fed, and you know, in those mornings when he came to wake me up, there was a huge part of me that did not want to get out of bed, and go out into the cold, and skate, because you know, I'm just a little guy, there's no meat on my bones, and it's cold, it hurts to go out in that cold, it's painful, my dad would get me up, and he'd load me into the car, we'd drive to the rink, and I remember one coach I had in particular, he was a a Canadian guy, and he really believed in the, the strategic nature of checking, in a game of hockey. So if, if you're familiar with hockey at all, checking is where you, you smash into the other guy and move him off of the puck, right? So we would do checking drills. With, with this coach, we always did checking drills. So for 30 minutes, we're just slamming into each other, right? Mid-ice checks where you're just trying to knock the guy onto the ground, or checks against the board where you, so you know, it's, it's, it's cold outside. There was one rink that was indoors, but half the time we were on an outdoor rink next to the lake, the wind is blowing across, it's, it's so cold and you're so tired, and you're slamming into other bodies, and I didn't want to get up. But there was a part of me that did want to get up because I wanted to do well in the game. I wanted to play well. I wanted to finish well. But the training wasn't always pleasant. The training actually sometimes was painful. Hey, that's the image that's being painted here. Training is painful. Notice what he says, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author has in mind an endurance race, not a sprint. The author almost certainly has in mind a marathon And training for a marathon is terrible. It's so terrible I've chosen never to do it. Right? It's difficult. It's painful. And then he switches metaphors in verse 4. And he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. That word for striving is to agonize against. The metaphor he's just moved into is the boxing match, the most brutal of the competitions in the heptathlon. Because they would train... With weights in their hands. And the winner would be the one. Who blackened the other one's eye. So in 1 Corinthians 9. Where Paul says I buffet my body. He says I blacken my eye. The winner would dot the other one's eye. Blacken the other eye. And if you've got lead weights in your hands. And you hit the other person in the eye. You're going to break bones. The training area in which they practice Was literally called the agony. It's difficult. It's difficult painful. It's challenging. And unless you believe that God is for you and that God loves you in this, you're going to say no. You're going to say no. The Apostle Paul said yes. He said yes, because I trust that God is for me. I trust that God loves me. And I long for God's character more than I want my own comfort. So how does God do it? How does God train us? Several different ways. First, Through suffering for our faith. That's actually the context here of the book of Hebrews. It's Jewish Christians who are suffering for their faith. And they're wondering, how long, Lord? Is this going to keep going? What's happening here? And they are tempted to pull away from Jesus Christ so that they no longer have to suffer. They don't have to suffer rejection from their family and friends who are Jewish or from Roman authorities. If they just step back away from Jesus, the suffering will end and they're under temptation. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, no, let me give you some illustrations of people who ran well and finished well. That's what chapter 11 is all about. Men and women who maintain their confidence and their trust in the faithfulness of God. So when he says you have this great cloud of witnesses, it's not that people are up in heaven watching you live your life. It's that they are testifying to the fact that God is faithful. So even when you are suffering for your faith, you know God is faithful. Even when they had to surrender their property or their freedom and go to prison or even their very lives, they're testifying to the fact that God is for you and God is good. Even when you're suffering because you belong to Jesus. And it may be that some of us here are not suffering because we belong to Jesus, because we have not publicly said in the world in which we live we belong to Jesus. the prophet said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Maybe God is calling you this morning to step out in faith and say publicly, I belong to him. If you do at some level, in some place, at some time, you will be ridiculed. You will suffer. That's one of the reasons that we suffer. It's one of the ways that God trains us to love Jesus and his approval more than the approval of the world. second way that God trains us is simply through suffering in a fallen world world is broken, so people suffer. And Christians suffer. And what's wrong with a gospel of pr- prosperity or health and wealth is that it's proclaiming God always wants you in all circumstances to be healthy. God always wants you in all circumstances to be wealthy and to prosper. In fact, God will give you wealth and prosperity and perfect health forever and eternity. But right now, sometimes, you know what? We just suffer, Christians, because the rest of the world suffers And the world needs to see us suffering along with them so they see the hope that we have in eternity. That we're not living for all that we can get now, but we're living for eternity. Listen to what is spoken about of Jesus, chapter 12, verse 2. It says, we fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and he's the perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross wasn't pleasant, people. But he chose it for the joy set before him. And sometimes in this world, men and women, we suffer just because we live in a broken, fallen world. I remember chapter 9 that we, of John we referenced a couple weeks ago. A man is born blind and the disciples say, well, who sinned? What gives? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, nobody sinned. But God wants to show his power and his glory in this man's life. And it may be God's doing the same in your life. It may be that you're simply suffering because you live in a broken world. God's allowing that. It's, it's a world of sickness. It's a world of, of earthquakes and famines. It's a world where cars crash into one another. It's a world of all kinds of diseases and hardships. God allows those to remain sometimes. Sometimes he takes us out of those situations, but sometimes he just allows those, to, allows those things to remain so that we can show how we suffer differently. Third source is consequences for our own sin. sometimes we are disciplined, and this is what we often think about first. We're disciplined because we have sinned. That happens sometimes. We live in a world that's ordered by God. There's a moral order. There is cause and there is effect. And sometimes, quickly, when we step out of God's moral order, a consequence comes down upon us. That's what James chapter 5 is about, right? It says, confess your sin to one another so that you can be healed. Howard Hendricks once wrote, freedom includes fences and it accepts responsibility. One is always free to choose, but never free to escape the consequences of those choices. The law of gravity provides a choice illustration. A person is free to jump from a high bridge, but once he is over the railing, he is no longer free, (laughs) right? The laws of the universe have intervened, and stopping the fall is not one of your choices any longer. Consequences. But, you know, sometimes we can't discern. Where is this coming from? Is it a consequence of sin? Is it part of living in a fallen world? Am I suffering as a result of my faith? Sometimes we just can't tell. I remember when I was in high school and I sprained my ankle in a basketball game. I remember getting carried to the bench thinking, what was the sin that I committed? And I was just sitting there racking my brain. How did I sin that God caused this to happen? And you know, I just thought and I thought and there wasn't anything that I could come up with and I finally concluded, I guess I just landed wrong. <laughs> and in a broken, fallen world, sometimes you land wrong. And sometimes you know and sometimes you don't know. But you do know this, that no matter what the source, Romans eight twenty eight is always true for all of you. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But what is the good? It may not be escape from the circumstances. The good may be the character that God is forming in you and shaping in you. And God is not calling all things good. He's calling the result good. He's not calling evil good. He's saying the consequence that I can bring about from this, the result of this lasting, enduring, God like, father like character, that's good. And I can take even the negatives in your life and I can turn them that direction if you trust me and if you embrace what I am doing in your life. But if you resist that, you will become angry at God and you will become bitter toward God and God's work of transformation will stop in your life. So, how do we respond? Let me give you a couple thoughts. Psalm 119. I remember the first time I read this and it really sunk in. I thought, this is really crazy. What in the world was David thinking? He said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. David says, God, thank you. Thank you for bringing affliction into my life. Whatever the source was that was in his mind, he says, this is actually a good thing. Why? So that I could learn what really matters. I could learn what really matters. Because when we're afflicted because of sin, we don't like sin so much any longer. When we're afflicted and we're even in the midst of all kinds of enjoyable circumstances, we realize, you know, these things won't ultimately fill me and make me complete. I need to live for what lasts and what matters. When we're afflicted, we we release our dependence upon ourselves. We become less self-reliant and we reach out and say, God, carry me. Carry me, rescue me, save me, deliver me, but carry me through this. It was good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. That's what James meant, James chapter one. He said, consider it all joy, right? Reckon it to your joy column in your ledger. This is something that counts for joy. Put it over here. It's joy when you suffer All kinds of trials, multifaceted trials from whatever source. Consider those joys. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing so that you can sprint across the finish line and not fold and fall at the end of the race. Because God has made you perfect and whole and complete, men and women, that is God's desire, that is God's goal for our lives. So a couple thoughts for you as we close. First, are you fighting against the circumstances in your life? Or is there something in you you can sense that your heels are digging in and you're saying, no, God. If you really loved me, then you'd remove that trial, you'd remove that barrier, you'd remove that hardship. Is there some place where you're digging your heels in? And this morning, you just simply need to reaffirm, God, I trust you. I believe that you know what's best and I believe that you always act in my life for good. Even if the circumstance is not good, you are good and the result is good. God, I trust you. Maybe this morning you just need to reaffirm that you believe that your father loves you. Second thing I want you to think about as we close. How badly do you want to be like your heavenly father? Do you want it more than anything else? Oh, to be like you? We give all that we have. Or do we give all that we have or is there some area of life where you say, well, I give all that I have but that. And maybe this morning God is saying, no, I want the, the, but that, that's the part I want right there. Maybe it's an area of sin, a particular area of sin, and God is saying, no, that, that won't give you life, that'll destroy you, and I love you too much to touch that hot pan again. Stop it. There's a particular area of sin God is pointing out. Maybe it's, he's trying to teach you to discipline yourself and say no to yourself so that his discipline doesn't have to intervene. Or maybe he's saying to you, you know what's... What I'm like is is I'm a God who gives, and I give, and I give, and I give. I give even to those who are enemies and who hate me and who revile me. That's how I give. And this morning, I want you to give in the same way. There's somebody that you need to forgive. You need to release them from that debt. So, God, I trust you to get justice. And I thank you that you've forgiven me so much. I release from that debt. Or maybe there's someone that you need to not just release from the debt, but you need to go after that person. You need to show them the grace of God. Maybe through some way that you serve, or you need to say, God, empower me to have courage to speak the words of truth and the gospel to my family members who are going to ridicule me, or my friends, or my neighbors. And they, having the opportunity to know you, is more important than my reputation with them. And so I'll give, and I'll give, and I'll give. See, so I never know on any particular Sunday what God's Spirit may be speaking to, to any of you. And so I want us to just take a few moments quietly. i you to bow your head before the Father and ask him just to search deeply within your own heart and speak to you about how he is working in your life to transform you into his character. So let's just have a few moments quietly before the Lord and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have too few moments that are quiet before you in which we can listen to your spirit speak. And so I do pray uh, that this moment would be uh, one that we repeat throughout this week. We get quiet enough for long enough that we allow your spirit to uh, touch us in a way that may uh, be painful, but will be transforming. I pray, Father, that increasingly so, we would your sons and daughters, made in your image. We would reflect your character, your personality. I pray that we'd be men and women who are holy, who are wholesome, who are complete. Men and women who give and forgive. I pray, Father, that we would reflect your very character, your nature, and people would look at us, and they would say, wow, that must be a wonderful father that they have. Oh, to be like him. Father, I thank you that you are relentless in your pursuit of us. And I thank you, Father, that even when we resist, you continue to chase. I pray that we would submit to your work in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week being a blessing to others. See you next week.